From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Our world, whatever that word means to you, is there waiting for us to engage with it, to observe it, to surrender to it. If we pay attention, it will reveal something to us that will redirect the course of our creativity. What else could we ever ask of this world in surrendering to it? What else could it ever ask of us? So writes Wiley Cash as part of an essay on creativity. While this New York Times bestselling author has published four novels collecting a passel of literary awards along the way, he writes a feature called The Creators of North Carolina for four North Carolina-based magazines. He's also contributed short stories and essays to the Oxford American, Garden and Gun, Bitter Southerner, and Our State magazine. He teaches fiction writing and literature as the alumni author in residence at the University of North Carolina Asheville and he recently launched an online creative community called This Is Working. It's his fascination with his own creative process and getting others into the creative flow. Writing, yes, but not only writing that we're here to talk about today. He joins me now. Wiley Cash, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel, for, for, for having me back on. It's it's really good to have you with us. It's, it's always a lively conversation with you. So let's, we're not talking about a book. We're talking about creativity and how that works and how it comes through people. It's such an important part of your life mm-hmm. and your family's life. Mallory mm-hmm. Cash, we know, is, is a photographer with a growing list of credits. You, a New York Times bestselling author, and you're raising two little girls. Mm-hmm. Why is it so important to you? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that we're not here to talk about a book because I'm actually kind of nervous because when we talk about a book, I know exactly what to talk about. But when you asked me to come on, you said, let's talk about creativity. And I thought, oh, my God, what is that? Right. I don't know. I don't know how to talk about that. But I think that, that, we, that we do find the language for something like that. Um, and so, yeah, creativity is a part of my day-to-day life. And I think that it's part of the lives of, of all of us, really. You know, I... I'm a writer now, but I, I've always been a creative person. I, I grew up with storytellers, but I also grew up with a father who was a handyman of sorts, and he was always problem-solving, um, things around the house. Um, and, and, you know, I've done renovations and, and, and home repair and all kinds of stuff with other people, and it's amazing how many times you hear a blue-collar person reach for a hammer and say, we're going to have to get creative. And that, what that means is we're going to have to problem solve. We're going to have to come up with other solutions. And, and so, you know, creativity is something that I do every day, whether I'm swinging a hammer or trimming the hedges or trying to write a novel. You know, and my, my family is enmeshed in that. I kind of drag them kicking and screaming sometimes into that way of life, as does, as does Mallory. But that's how it is right now. You've said that, that your wife can observe you at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And she can tell whether you've had some kind of creative flow or creative connection happen? How, what does she say? What does she observe? Well, before I answer that, I want to say that I genuinely think that creativity is one of the overlooked forms of health in America. You know, we understand that physical health is very important. Uh, in the past 
you know, handful of decades, we've understood that mental health is, is certainly something that we need to, to be aware about in our communities and in and, and ourselves. But I think creative health and, and, and our ability to be nimble on our feet and to solve problems and to confront issues, whether it be climate change or violence or poverty or writing a novel, those are one and the same. We're using the same parts of our brains and the same, the same muscles in our, in our, in our minds to, to solve those issues. And so I think that creative health goes hand in hand with, you know, when somebody says, oh, my gosh, you look great. And you're like, well, you know what? I've been drinking a ton of water and sleeping. So it doesn't surprise me <laughs> that you think I look great, you know. Um, or somebody says, you know, you seem so happy. It's like, well, I've been meditating. <laughs> but when I come home from the office and I've had a good day at the desk and Mallory can just tell that I'm, I, I'm lighter on my feet, I'm, I'm more agreeable, I'm... I'm, I'm easier to be around. I'm, I'm not as withdrawn. I'm more engaged with the world. It's because that morning I've invited the world in. I've been, I might have been sitting with, at my desk, but I'm, I'm engaging with the world around me through my creative mind. And so that, that's why I think she can tell. You know, my creative health on that day is 100%. So if it's so natural, if it's something that a handyman or someone who is researching uh, medical advancement of some sort, or a musician, or a writer, if it's something that we can all engage with through whatever our lives present to us, then why are so many people blocked and why do so many people not feel it? Mm -hmm. I don't know if we're blocked. You know, I've never had writer's block, but I have looked at the blank page and been afraid of it and felt if I put a word on this screen, I can't take it back. Even if I erase it, I've disturbed something. And that's what creativity is. Creativity is our willingness to engage with something that is disturbing us, that is distracting us, that is pushing us in a different direction. We know the term thinking outside the box. That's what creativity asks of us. It's such a cliche phrase to say, but when we have to get creative, like I was talking about sitting there with a hammer in your hand or trying to replumb your sink and you're like, oh, God, we're going to have to get creative. What that means is we're going to have to make ourselves uncomfortable for a little bit. And so I think oftentimes when people say, well, I'm just not creative, what, they, what they're really saying is I'm afraid of stepping out there. I'm afraid that I'm going to discover something. I'm going to uncover something that's going to take me in a direction that I'm not confident I can really go in. But we can all do it. It's all there waiting for us. And, and also, you know, we think, well, I don't have a story to tell. I don't have anything to be creative with. I don't live I, – I, I encounter this all the time with my undergraduates at UNC Asheville. They say, well, you know, they want to set stories in New York City or they want to set stories in Los Angeles or they want to set stories on the moon with, you know, elves and Ewoks and whatever else, vampires. But I say, you know, you've never been to New York City. You've never been to Los Angeles. I'm not buying your story on the moon, Ewoks on the moon. Why don't you write about your hometown? Well, nothing happens in my hometown. No, I'm, I'm from a no place. And I asked them, well, did you have your heart broken there? Did you disappoint your parents? Did you get in a fight with your friend? Did you have your first job? Did you, were you fired? All of those things happen in your hometown. But we're oftentimes afraid to engage with that stuff because it's going to take us down a route that we don't know. And usually the route that we don't know is the route to ourselves. Yeah, so the so the... The external path, the external observation then, is the internal route that you're talking mm -hmm. about. We can't really separate those two mm -hmm. things. Sure. So 
you talk a lot about fear and you you in an essay and in some creative conversations that you've had with um, poet Maggie Smith and um, author and New York Times opinion writer Margaret Renkel, you've talked about your fear, mm-hmm. your fear of the blank page. At the beginning of our discussion today, you talked about your fear of coming on to talk about creativity mm-hmm. and not having a book, like sure. a tangible book in front of you. I had fear about this conversation. (laughs) But in one of your essays, you write, while wandering around the house, I would think about the ways I was going to make it a home for my family, talking about this new home you Mm -hmm. moved into, new old home. I would demo the small closets and build shelving and hang two clothing racks to maximize space. I would build a loft. I would build a treehouse. I would screen in the porch, plant a garden, grow our own vegetables. Mm -hmm. I would do anything and everything except work on my novel. So what is that fear? I mean, you, you said it's, it's going to places where we don't know where it might lead. But can we, can we name that more specifically? Like, why are we afraid of that? I think it's because it breaks the rules that we've been raised under here in, in the Western world, by and large. You know, I don't want to bring in, you know, try to take down the capitalist structure with my ideas about creativity. <laughs> but... You know, when you're, when you're a kid and you're growing up in a town like Gastonia and your mom's a nurse and your dad's a pharmacist and you say, guess what, everybody? I'm going to Asheville to major in creative writing. That's a strange thing to want to do when you're from the place that I'm from and you're from the family that I'm from. Um, and I remember thinking, God, this feels so self-indulgent. This feels so self-indulgent. How am I going to support myself? How am I going to support a family? And once we kind of break away from those structures – then we have, we have more freedom to really pursue the things that interest us. But, but back to what you read about um, me doing anything that I can do to work on my novel, that's true, and I, and I still do that. I still have to create space for me to relax into my creativity. I still have to shut out the world in order to get in some kind of workflow to really feel as if deeply engaged and meaningful work is happening. And sometimes that means I'll have to build a treehouse before I can do that. That means I'll have to demo the closet and do something else or, 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 or just clean my desk or get out Windex and wipe my desk down. But while I'm doing those things, what I'm really thinking about is my book, right? Even though I'm doing something else, I'm living in the work that I'm supposed to be doing, right? How do you know that you're doing that and not practicing avoidance? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I know because I cross my fingers when I do it. Um, (laughs) I don't really know, you know, but I think that oftentimes people tell me, well, I'd write a book too if I had the time that you have. And when I wrote my first novel, I was living in West Virginia. I was teaching four classes a semester at a college, making, you know, a pittance. Um, I was advising, living in campus housing, just engage with students all the time. And I would wake up early in the morning and write and stay up late at night and I would grade and I made the time. But I didn't have eight hours a day to work on a book. So when I was teaching, let's say, John Smith's exploration narrative of you know, early America, maybe I was thinking about my own work. When I was talking to a student about what they were going to major in, maybe I was thinking about, oh my gosh, this is resonant with the character I'm trying to develop. How am I going to live in my story while I'm not at the desk, right? And so, again, when you're swinging a hammer, when you're doing something else, 
You can live in the work that you'd rather be doing if you had the space and the bravery to do it. So the more we think that way and the more we engage with our minds in that way, the easier it is to do the work we want to do. You're listening to Coastline. New York Times bestselling author Wiley Cash is my guest today. We're talking about creativity, what it is, why it matters so much to him, and why he's building a creative community. After this short break, we'll be right back. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Wiley Cash has written four novels, the most recent published in 2021. When Ghosts Come Home is his first murder mystery. He also created a book club called The Open Canon, and now he's launched what he describes as a creative community called This Is Working, designed to help people connect to their own creative flow. And Wiley Cash, as part of this creative community, you it's a it's a monthly membership and you interview better known creatives so far june and july it, it's been two writers two women margaret renkel is one of them she was the author of late migrations and natural history of love and loss she's an opinion writer for the new york times and she talks about how she works and the environment that she needs to work and uh, I just, at the end of the last segment, you talked about creatives having a fear of being seen as being self-indulgent or just feeling self-indulgent. And I, I think this is, this is sort of illuminating in terms of what Margaret Runkle says. I am translating the world into language instantaneously always. Mm-hmm. So... Um, for me, it would be hard to tell the difference between the word waxwing and the bird waxwing. Do you see what I'm saying? Sure. They 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 fire up at exactly the same time, the image and the and the actual letters. Um, as far as where the emotions come from, I think that must happen too simultaneously. I think it must just be this stew. I'm a slow thinker. I'm a really really. I'm re- it, it does words don't just pour out of me, and they don't. And the matching of those pulling from here for the emotions, pulling from here for the language, pulling from here for the actual thing itself, those things I have to ponder. I, those things don't come to me right away. I, I'm not, uh, I don't think of myself really too much as an introvert, but if I don't have vast swabs of solitude, I can't make it work. She's very in tune with what she needs. What do you need? How do you create your own environment to write? Exactly what she said. And, you know, I think that a lot of the, t- lot of the time that I was talking about in the last segment about things that may come across as procrastinating, what I'm really doing is I'm creating the mental space through a physical landscape of what, what looks like procrastination, but what I'm doing is I'm doing something physical working through my mind, whether I'm going for a walk or whether I'm cleaning up the house or I'm, what I'm not doing is I'm not like going out having beers with buddies. I'm not going down to the beach and throwing the Frisbee around. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be alone and I may be doing something that involves a physical task, 
but in my mind, I'm really engaging with the intellectual and the creative problem that I'm trying to solve that's going to take me back to the desk. On the same hand, I have uh, a practice of when things are going well at the desk, when I'm working on a novel or I'm working on an essay, um, and it's going well, and I have an aha moment, I get up. I always get up, and I go, and I live in the world for a little bit. And I live in the world with the glow and the hum and the satisfaction that my work is going well. And then I go back to the desk, and it feels like I am entering the most holy, peaceful space because I'm entering work and a page that is waiting for me and it's reaching toward me as I'm reaching toward it, right? And so I think that, you know, creativity is really, it's not just an emotional, intellectual space. It can be a physical space that you, you have to move through to really get the work done. I don't really see any difference in my life at the desk or in my car in traffic. Those are the same spaces to me. I'm, I'm thinking about my work. I'm thinking about the creative task at hand in the exact same way. You said to me that people would do well to consider the mysteries of creativity and demystify them, mm -hmm. which is, I think, what we're talking about. Sure. Because we have all these intellectual ideas mm -hmm. about what it is, but that has nothing often to do with the, the practice that you're talking about, which is living in the world and seeing the external as content to fuel all of the internal stuff. So talk more about this fear that some people have of becoming hopeless navel gazers, mm -hmm. completely self-focused and internally focused to the exclusion or to the detriment of the outside world. Yeah, you know, I think that especially writers, there, there, there is a certain mystical uh, glaze or gall, I don't know, gauze, some gossamer gauze glaze, I don't know, some G word, um, <laughs> around writers that makes it seem that writers are so introspective that they are unreachable and that you can't relate to them. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, that, and that, that breeds a fear that others, other people think, well, I want to pick up a pen and I want to give it a try, but I don't want my neighbor to find out I'm doing it, right? And I have so many people who, who come up to me at events, if I'm at a library or a university, and they'll say, I want to write, and they'll like whisper it like they're ashamed of it, like, I really want to write a novel. Yeah. And I'm like, then you should. And they're like, oh, <laughs> I'd, be in, I'd be embarrassed to do it. And I'm thinking... I'd be embarrassed to tell somebody I want to do it and not do it, right? That to me is embarrassing. Um, but they're afraid. They're afraid of, of somebody thinking, oh, well, look at you. You think you got a story to tell? You know, I find it incredible that you think you've got something important to write about. And so I think there's that. But I also think that, you know, we think that no pursuit is worth pursuing unless it makes you beautiful or wealthy, and creativity is not, it's, it's not one of those things, right? You know, we, and so if you can't make money on the front end of it and you can't get in physical, achieve some kind of physical beauty on the front end of it, a lot of people see it as not worth doing. And, and that's a shame because I think that that keeps many of us from stepping out into something that would make us uncomfortable but would ultimately help us be much happier than 
going after money or going after physical beauty or youth or, or whatever the case may be. Which is what you're talking about when you talk about creative health. Mm-hmm. Like sure, you're absolutely. You're linking it to, directly to someone's quality of life. Yes. And, and what, what, what's, what's amazing about creative health, and, and this is something that my wife Mallory said when we were talking about this very thing, that we, you know, we focus on physical health, we, we, we talk about mental health, but we don't talk about creative health. And Mallory made a great point. She said, she said I can feel it. When I've watched a season on Netflix, I'm reading a great book, I'm thumbing through somebody's collected photography, she said, and I feel something in my body that needs to get out, and it makes me want to create. And she said, I can't imagine how unhealthy I would feel if I consumed all of that and didn't create anything based on that consumption. And we think about consumption and output in terms of calories, in terms of clinical counseling, perhaps, in terms of exercise, but we don't think about it in terms of creativity. And so many of us on a day-to-day basis are streaming hours and hours of Netflix or whatever the show, whatever the, whatever the channel is. We're listening to music. We're, we're assaulted by the creativity of others. And, and thank God we are because I think it makes us better. But then what do we do with it? It just, it just goes away. It comes into us and it goes through us. But what if we use that energy? We used those creative calories and we created something as a result of them. We burned them off by stepping into our own creativity. And we thought, well, I've got an idea for a show. I'm going to learn how to play the guitar. I'm going to write a poem. I'm going to write a short story. Um, I'm going to make up a story tonight for my kid instead of reading a book we've read a million times. Like what would happen if we just tried to do what we had been seeing done in terms of entertainment for years and years and years. One of the points that you you keep making about writing and the creative process is the importance of direct and specific observation. And when you were talking with poet Maggie Smith, uh, she, who wrote Good Bones, I think it was 2016, and she describes that as a poem that went viral um, and maybe we'll read that later in the program. But she talks about how she writes in a way that is so deeply specific to her. Because you were asking her, how does she speak so effectively to so many people? And this mm-hmm. is what she said. Well, I mean, I don't think there's any way to sort of write for the collective. I don't know what that looks like. I mean, I guess it looks like advertising copy. Um, you know, the, the kind of writing that I've done in, in my life professionally, like on spec, where someone says, we need something written for this audience. It needs to be this long. It needs to look like this. And it needs to appeal to these people. I mean, that is a kind of writing. But it's not the kind of writing I do creatively for myself. Because I I don't, I wouldn't even say I don't know how to do that. I just don't want to. <laughs> so, you know, the, the writing I do for myself is really, it is interior. And I think I can only speak for myself. But I think most of us, if we speak only for ourselves, find somehow magically, we are also speaking on behalf of lots of other people because we're human beings and we have more in common than not. 
And so if I write, you know, you know, and this is this comes out in student work too, as I'm sure you've had, where people try to write a universal poem. It yeah. doesn't work. It doesn't work. It just will never work. You have to write a poem that is specific to have it be quote unquote universal. It's a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? That was Maggie Smith, mm -hmm. poet. Requires going so deeply inside oneself, tuning everything else out to connect mm -hmm. with everyone else. Sure. Yeah. How does that work for you? You know, I think that we all, all humans, we, we all feel the same things. Grief, isolation, hope, fear, love, uncertainty, greed. We all feel the same things. And when you really drill, drill down on one of those emotions, you open a space for other people to encounter it and to inhabit it as well. There was a, uh, there's, there's a famous saying, it's often credited to William Faulkner, but I, I don't know if he said it, that the goal of his work was to make the local universal, to really drill down on this small posted stamp of earth in Mississippi and discuss universal ideals of equity and fairness and race and, and anger and the sins of the fathers and all of these things. Um, and so that's what, you know, we're really trying to do when, when, I, when I get students or when Maggie gets students or when Maggie sits down to write a poem, to really look inward and ask yourself, what am I trying to say? What is inside me and how do I get that out? And that's problem solving. It's like I said at the beginning of the show, you're standing with a hammer in hand and your buddy looks at you and is like, man, we got to get creative. That's what you have to do when you have something inside of you and you say, I want to get this on the page or the canvas or on the, on the, on the tape if I'm recording a song. I want to get this deeply personal thing. I want to extricate it from myself and I want to get it out there in a way that it's going to relate to other people. Right? And I'm not writing a global universal poem, a global universal painting. I'm doing something that's deeply personal, but I have to extricate it from the core of my being and get it out there in a way that's going to relate to other people. And when we're hooked by a show, when we're hooked by a song, that's what's happened to us. Like the modeling, the scaffolding is out there. We witness it every day. And part of creativity is reverse engineering the things that are effective to us. And that's why in the July exercise, I asked people to, to go find work that speaks to you. Find something that feels urgent, whether it's a painting or a song or a story that is urgent. What about it draws you to it? Why and how are you immediately engaged with that song or that show or that commercial short story? Name the art form. Um, stand-up comedian, why are you engaged? Why can't you take your eyes off of that? And then your heart follows your eyes, right? Uh, or your ears or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, that's something that I'm really interested in. And we're, we're all lured by that. And when, when we see how something works, we can do it. Talking with Wiley Cash, New York Times bestselling author who has created an online creativity community called This Is Working. So the two writers that you have featured in the two months so far of This Is Working are, are both women writers. Is that by design? No, I just thought, I think that I chose those two folks because that's where my mind was. You know, I, I'm doing this, speaking of navel gazing, hello America, let me invite you into my process, right? But I want to do it the way like, you know, a meditation teacher might do it. This is how it works for me. It might not be how it works for you but I'm gonna show you how it works for me and maybe you can glean something from it, right? I can't teach people how to be creative, but I can show them how I do it 
and maybe that'll unlock something for them. And so when I was thinking, you know, each month I write an essay about my creative process, I've got these exercises. Well, based on where my mind is and where my heart is and what I'm thinking about creativity, that leads me to reach out to the people that I've reached out to. You know, when I had the experience and and when I wrote the essay in June about seeing um, the Carolina Wren, I thought, oh, well, Margaret Wrinkle writes beautifully about birds, right? That's kind of her metaphor in her her essays. I'm going to reach out to her. When I I thought about urgency and creating personal space in your work, Maggie Smith was the go-to. All of her work does that. She has this incredible power to begin a poem with something deeply personal and then almost you can see the mirror turning in her poem where it's on you and it ends with an invitation for you to experience the same emotion she's, she's experiencing in the poem or her children are experiencing. And, and, and you can't stop it from happening because the poems are so well structured. And so, you know, in the future, I've got a stable of people that have been stupid enough to agree to do this with me. And I'm just <laughs> going to call on them whenever that month's theme seems to uh, – seems to, to meet what I want to talk to them about or what I think they do particularly well uh, in their own creativity. So much of the discussions that you have and your explorations are about kind of the dance between discipline and structure, craft and the art. Mm-hmm. And the art, by that I mean almost the willingness to let the creativity take you somewhere that you weren't expecting to go. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that dance? Because I I think in the next segment, we're going to hear more from Maggie Smith just about how willing she is to let things change and let go of outcomes and let go of her kind of ego-driven ideas about what something is. But how... How and when do you know that it's right to do that instead of just powering through, well, this is what I said I was going to write? A couple of ways. The The most honest creative work I've done is work that I forget about. And I forget about it for this reason. It's because I've released it into the world and it exists outside of me. And, it, and I, I can talk about my books rather objectively If I get a bad review on Goodreads, that still hurts my feelings, America, so don't think that I don't have (laughs) sensibilities. But when things feel real, they, they, they leave me relatively quickly. But the times when I look at something and I can remember writing every word, I know I've made a mistake in letting it go. When I've, when I've consciously worked on something and I can remember it's like trying to walk through waist-high snow when you're wading through the words, and I'm like, and then he drove to the <laughs> airport. And I'm like, oh, that's so lazy. And I, I can remember doing it. So that, that's when I know that I'm not surrendering, that I'm not – that I'm forcing it, that I'm not having that dance, that, that kind of unconscious dance with the work. Um, but, you know, what I really try to do is get in the flow of things. I really try to let the, the work kind of come to me. And sometimes it comes easier than, than other days. But I try to be disciplined and stay at the desk and, and have my, my two hours or my two front and back handwritten notebook pages, whatever, whatever the gauge of that day's work is. And, you know, you kind of see where it goes. And I try not to beat myself up. And like we tell our girls every night before we close the door, we've gotten the habit of saying, tomorrow's a new day. And they say, tomorrow's a new day. And every day I get it from the desk, I think, good or bad, tomorrow's a new day. 
You're listening to Coastline. Wiley Cash is my guest today. When we come back after this short break, we'll have more with this New York Times bestselling author and now creative coach. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilbert for Coastline. listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. You may know Wiley Cash as a writer, whether through his novels, When Ghosts Come Home, A Land More Kind Than Home, This Dark Road to Mercy, or The Last Ballad. You might have read his essays or short stories in Garden and Gun, Bitter Southerner, Our State Magazine, The Oxford American. Or you might have caught his column in four North Carolina-based magazines with photographs by his wife, Mallory Cash. But we are now getting to know Wiley Cash as a creative coach through an online community he's created called This Is Working. And in one of the creative conversations that you had, Wiley Cash, with poet Maggie Smith, who wrote the poem that went viral in 2016, Good Bones, you were talking with her again about sitting down with an intention, an idea, Mm -hmm. but being willing to let that go in service of whatever this thing is that we're calling creative flow. And she she also engages in a fishing metaphor here, even though she admits she doesn't fish and she doesn't <laughs> know the names of that many fish. But the point is, she makes it interesting and accessible. So let's listen. If I went out because I wanted to catch a bass and I sat in my boat and I only looked for that one fish, I might leave with nothing because I have in my mind this idea of like the perfect thing that I want to have happen from that experience, right? But if I just go out and I'm like, I'm I'm just gonna cast, I'm gonna drop my my hook in in the water and I'm gonna take in the air and I'm gonna look at the clouds and I'm just gonna enjoy the experience out here. Something will happen. You might catch a shoe you might catch a turtle, you might catch nothing, but you might notice something happening, you know, in the trees off to the side or above you, or maybe you look down and something's swimming under your boat that is way too big for you to catch, but you get to witness it and describe it later. I don't know, this metaphor is getting away from me, but I just think not having an intention is the key because you will put blinders on and you will miss so much other stuff that's really rich and probably better than what you think you're going for in the first place. Um, if you don't sort of shut yourself off. Poet Maggie Smith talking about letting go of intention in the writing process. Wiley Cash, this was part of your interview with her. Can you think of a time in your work, a specific time when you did that? You kind of, you sat down with one intention, you realized it, you had to let go, and something else came out. This morning, actually. Um, I'm, I'm at work on a new novel, 
our, our, our Cape Fear listeners will be uh, hopefully excited to hear that it's again set in the Cape Fear region. And I've just had in my mind that, that forever I'm going to write a novel, uh, and one of the main characters is going to be a guy who is a, is, a, is a biologist who's researching birds, migratory patterns, and climate change here in the Cape Fear. And I was really excited about that. I've learned as much as I can about birds. Um, I've gone birding, bought some bird books, got not one but two sets of binoculars. Uh, my kids are learning about birds. Mallory's gotten interested in birds. And then I realized this guy's not going to work as a birder, right? I've created this character, but I don't know as much about birds that a biologist who's spent his career focusing on birds is going to know. You know, I can find out what they're called, but I really can't scratch the educational knowledge. And then I realized I focused so much on him being a biologist that I don't really know who he is as a character, as a, as a person. I just really needed him to be a biologist in order for him to click in this part of the novel. And so this morning, I opened my document. I was in our office. We were in an office uh, here in town. And I sat down at about 7.30 this morning, opened the novel, and I said, I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read it from the first chapter, and I'm going to find my way back to this character. And I learned after surrendering and sitting in the boat, as Maggie suggested, and looking around and just seeing what was out there, this guy's not a birder. He, he's a writer who's been hired to write about migratory patterns of this bird that's just shown up in the region that he's from. And he doesn't know anything about birds, but he knows the region. And the editor for the magazine that gives him the assignment says, well, you don't know anything about birds and neither does your reader. And I thought, well, that's going to make it a whole lot more interesting to write this character because that's kind of what I'm experiencing trying to write about birds, right? And so once I let go of the idea that this guy had to know everything about birds and surrendered to the fact that I don't know anything about birds, it took the pressure off having to create a character that knows everything about birds, right? And it made him not only easier to write, it also makes him way more interesting to read, and it makes him feel much more human because he doesn't have all the answers. So you talk about surrendering so much surrendering to what is actually happening. You talk about surrendering when you sit down at the desk to write. How do you do that? What does that feel like? What are you letting go of? Well, I don't know that I'm letting go of anything. I think I'm surrendering to my own creativity. You know, this is going to make me sound like an old, like an old coot. Maybe I am. Um, but, you know, contemporary life in America and, 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 and the larger world is so fractured. Our attention is so fractured with cell phones, with interruptions, with even if you're not on social media, you know, email, text messages. And the average adult is interrupted during their workday and uh, an average of every three minutes. You know, you're interrupted. And, and, and studies show that the effect of getting a text message has the same effect as being intoxicated trying to perform a task. It takes you a moment to reorient yourself to the task at hand. And so sometimes you have to shut out all of those things, put your phone on airplane mode, get a, an internet app that locks you out of the internet, um, lock your door, close your windows, and just be with yourself for a little bit. And some of us really don't want to do that, right? Because um, we don't know how to anymore. You know, our muscle memory reaches for our phone. We reach for the remote. We Let me just scroll through Instagram to see if anybody's thinking about me. 
and we're afraid of being self-indulgent, but my God, how self-indulgent is it to get on Facebook every five minutes to see if anybody likes your post about your dog? That's the very definition of self-indulgent. So if Cousin Ricky tells you you're being self-indulgent right in your novel, say like, Ricky, get your dog off Instagram. That's self-indulgent. <laughs> All right. How about that? How about we start there? Um, and so when I, sur- when I say surrender, what I'm surrendering to is really my own desire to engage with something meaningful and, and that is much more real and much more full of passion and, and certainty and much more alive than text messaging and, and phones and, and email and, 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 and those kinds of things. But, and, and I also say that, you know, I, 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 in one of the essays, I talk about Margaret Rinkle, and I was at an event in, in Louisville several months ago, and, 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 a, and somebody in the audience asked, well, I write essays, and I look at birds. Why can't I write an essay like you? And she said, you know, we all observe the natural world. Our job as, as artists and creators is to surrender to it, to really let it take us. And that's sub-natural world creativity, sub-everything you want into there. But just to let it take us over and to just let go of our own hang-ups and our own fears of being, you know, a writer or an artist or a painter or a dancer or whatever the creative outlet you're reaching for is just to surrender to it. Um, Because everybody would be a writer, artist, dancer if they have more time. Well, we've all got the same amount of time. We've all got the same amount of time. But it's just surrendering to it, even if it's in our working life during the day, surrendering to those impulses and holding on to those creative moments. You mentioned the distraction of social media, but you also have feelings about the quality of the interactions mm-hmm. that we have on social sure. media. Yeah. Tell us about those feelings. Yeah, you know, I was on I'm I'm on social media a little bit. I I'm no longer on Twitter. Um I'm on Instagram primarily. I hope she's not listening, but my editor kind of scolded me when I got off Instagram. Um, but, you know, I'm on Facebook a little bit. I have an author page, but I'm just realizing that I, I just want to move away from that level of interaction because it's not really real interaction. And um, it's not real. Say more. Yeah. Say more. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not real, and, and and it's this circular thing. It kind of keeps us from interacting, and we feel more connected when we're on social media, but what we are is we're just distracted from the fact that we're not connected when we're on social media. And social media is designed to keep you on it as long as possible. It's designed to interrupt you. Those algorithms are designed to create this circular experience where you see information that makes you feel good or you see information that gives you some kind of righteous anger or indignation that you can lash out against, or you see information that makes you jealous, and then you see a product that will cure that jealousy in the next scroll. And that kind of stuff, it just keeps you locked on there. And I'm just, I'm at a point in my life where I'm realizing, you know, I'll be 45 this year, and I'm not saying my days are limited, but I just don't want to spend my days that way. And in creating this as working, I thought, well, this is a way that I can really engage with people who want to come with me off of social media. I can share my process with them. There's, there's parts on the site where they can share their work with me. I've just begun a, a daily writer's journal where I'm going to share my writing experience every single day, and people can comment with their own experiences um, because it's, it's more real. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to put ads on there and try to get you to buy, you know, a particular brand of flip-flops so that your 
girlfriend will think you have cute feet. You know, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm not going to enrage you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do any of that because I'm not really interested in those conversations. And that's why, you know, I've brought the the book club Open Canon back onto this to this platform as well. And you know, just just to to join with strangers out there, and and to get on these Zoom meetings that I'm having and and talk about a shared text, it's incredible. You know, yeah. Um, instead of just posting something pithy on Facebook and hope that you know, that 13 people like it before lunch. Yeah, and and I'm with you when it comes to uh, the purpose of keeping people engaged mm-hmm. is so often through enraging people, which is a secondary emotion anyway. So you're primarily a writer, so you may not be qualified to answer this. I'm qualified to do but... very little, actually. <laughs> but what about making bad art? Because mm-hmm. is that part of the process of being oh, creative? God, yes. And you know, you're a guy who's written four novels, and and I don't know at least three of them, but maybe all four have wound up. Mm-hmm. Has it been all four New York Times bestseller? No, actually, only the first was okay. a New York Times bestseller. But that's a crown, Rachel. I wear forever. <laughs> no one <laughs> yes, can take that away. Yes, no one you, can take that away. That is absolutely. But they have right. been. They've been. But, they've sold nationally, like national lists and things like that. But. Um, yeah, but you were going to say. But yeah, yeah, so you're a famous guy. And well. and people who are not famous are are trying to engage in in their creative processes. So how do you give yourself and other people permission to make bad art? And does that have to be part of the process? It does. Thank you for saying I'm famous. I don't think anyone thinks that except my mom. <laughs> I'm serious when I say that. Um, but yeah, you have to make bad art. I mean, holy moly! I I make so many. I'll have a I'll have a day at the desk where I'll think that's it. I'm the greatest writer ever, and then I'll go the next day and open up the same document and think I have no business doing this. And and inevitably, you know, I teach up at UNC Asheville, and every year I teach classes in the fall. Inevitably, and I hope my students don't hold this against me. There are days right before I walk in the classroom where I think I'm a fraud. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to say. None of this is real. And then I'll take a breath and say, all right, let's go. Let's yeah. go in here and talk for an hour and a half in front of these you know, people who are trying to learn something from me. And so that doubt, that fear of creating bad art, that fear of not knowing. You know, I sat down in this conversation today with an element of fear of not being able to, to fill the hour you know, with my creativity experiment. But, you know, we got to touch that fear sometimes. It keeps us it keeps us learning. It keeps us moving. It keeps us um, engaging with that, that creative source to go out there and, and try to get these questions answered and try to get these things that are inside of us, outside of us. Um, so, but yeah, bad art. I mean, there's a writer named Anne Lamont who has a great book called Bird by Bird. And I won't say what she calls them, but it begins with S and rhymes with itty bitty. First drafts. First drafts. Yeah. yeah, you really have to crank out one of those and look at it. And it's almost like throwing up and you're like, oh, that's gross. And you're like, well, there's some corn. At least I know what that is, right? That's what, that's what a bad first draft is. You get it all on the page and you say, well, I can work with that, right? So we, we've been putting a lot of words on this and you're a writer. And so it's, that's about words. But you talked about creativity being problem solving mm-hmm. and talked about going within and, and surrendering to it in order to connect to the collective or the universal. Are we talking about something spiritual here? 
Is this is this transcendent? I think it is in a way. You know, I don't I don't want to say spiritual in terms of getting you closer to whatever divinity you hold dear to you, whether that's, you know, God or nature or whatever kind of spiritual experience you want to have. But, you know, I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church, which means I can't dance and I talk loud when I get excited. <laughs> and I tell students at the beginning of every semester when I teach creative writing that you know, we go to church for, for two reasons, shame um, I'm and, and to have, and have, have the mysteries explained to us, right? The mysteries of life, the mysteries of death, the mysteries of sin, the mysteries of forgiveness. And whether it's Wednesday morning or Sunday morning or whenever it is you go to a house of worship, you're there hoping that your spiritual leader is gonna, going to unlock some kind of mystery for you. And when I teach creative writing, that's what I tell my students. I say, I come in here with the same questions that someone might go to church with. How does this work? How does this story work? This is a mystical experience, putting this creativity on the page or on the canvas um, or on the stage. This is a mystical thing. I can't explain this. But we can see how it works. We can look at the craft. We can look at the structure. We can unpack the characters. We can look at how the plot moves. And maybe we can get a little bit closer to that mystery. So what's one thing somebody could do right now who's listening to this to engage more deeply with their creativity? One thing I think they can do is pay attention to the world around them and, and understand that these abstract emotions that they have inside of them they are manifested in the exterior world. There is a physical item, whether it be a bird or a tree, um, that, that is out there waiting for your abstract emotion to interact with it. That's this edition of Coastline. Wiley Cash, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Rachel. The online creative community is called This Is Working. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Mm-hmm.